if we've not met, hi, uh, my name is Kyle. I get to be one of the pastors here, and I want to, as we go into the next song, read a just a brief passage of scripture and open the door for you. This is Psalm 134. It says, Praise the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who serve at night in the house of the Lord. Lift up holy hands in the sanctuary and praise the Lord. Lift up holy hands in the sanctuary and praise the Lord. There is value to engaging our bodies in worship. There is value to doing with our bodies what we're doing with our mouths as we sing. And and part of the reason I'm just opening the door today, part of the reason I'm opening the door today is to kind of maybe give some explanatory factor to the weird people who raise their hands in worship. But to also tell you that the weird people raising their hands in worship are just doing what scripture says. And so as we sing this next song, I would like to open the door for you to raise your hands in worship, perhaps as a sign of openness to God, perhaps as a sign of surrender to him, a sign of your need for him, or to not. Or to not. What I have loved, what has happened in our community over the last three months is presence of God on Sunday mornings is becoming thick and thick and thick. That's a really great thing. And so I want us to continue to invite the Spirit's presence in whatever ways we can and keep us moving in that direction. I'm not challenging you. I'm not asking you. I'm just opening the door. Would you stand as we sing together? On my life, I did not know those words were in that song on my life. Um, This is what happens when we let Jesus take the lead. Let's pray. Jesus, that is our prayer this morning is that you would be enthroned on our hearts. I love the words of this song because it's just so intentional. Our hearts are a temple. In that temple, there's a throne. And our prayer this morning, Jesus, is that you would be the only one sitting on it. That we wouldn't be forcing you to like half cheek with other things in our life. But that instead, Lord, you would be the king of all we are, not just as a people, but as a y'all, as us, as the people we know as Regen. And so Jesus, come by your spirit and move as we, as, uh, we look at your word together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. Yeah, I never want to be manipulative. So I I did that, and then I was like, oh, crap. Kids can go back with Miss Jordan. Um, I didn't want to appear as if I'm forcing anything. If you have a Bible, go with me to Colossians 1. Go with me to Colossians 1. Colossians 1. I don't know if you ever heard the joke, when a preacher looks at his watch, what does it mean? Absolutely nothing. Especially my watch stopped working today, so somebody will need to order pizza in about an hour or something. Um, 
Let that be my cute illustration. We're just going to go for it. Look at Colossians 1, verse 21. We're going to pick up kind of where we left off. This includes y'all who were once far away from God. Y'all, by the way, you plurals here. Y'all were his enemies, separated from him by y'all's evil thoughts and actions. Yet now is reconciled, y'all, to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought y'all into his own presence. You, plural, are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. But, verse 23, chapter 1, you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't Drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. We're in this book of Colossians as Jesus calls us, excuse me, as Paul calls us back to the simple gospel of Jesus. As Paul calls us back to the simple gospel of Jesus. And there at the end of chapter 1, he offers this charge. He says, don't drift away, Colossians. Don't drift away. Paul has described the work of Jesus in this compelling and magnificent language in chapter 1, writing of their faith and hope and love and their knowledge and wisdom and understanding and the supremacy of Christ in all things. He's someone who holds the universe together and he waxes poetic and then he turns his attention to the church in Colossians and says, I'm talking about you. And he says, don't drift away from these things. See, the church in Colossae was tempted to give up the simplicity of the gospel, to drift either into the legalism of their past, the strict rule following to please God, or the paganism of their past, the let anything go, let it be wild, let it happen of their past, as these people that were far from Jesus have been transferred from a kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son, they're bringing baggage with them, and that baggage is dragging them back to where they came from. And so Paul says, don't drift away, stand firm. Because to drift would mean losing sight of the good news of Jesus. News that has changed everything about the way that the world is. Do you know the difference between news and advice? See, a lot of us interpret the news of the gospel as advice. Here's this thing. I can think about it and take it or leave it. I can cherry pick the parts that I like and walk away from the parts that I don't. But here's the reality. It's, it's not advice. It's, it's news. News is not what we see on Facebook. News is not what we see on CNN or MSNBC or Fox News. Take your pick. News is here is this thing that has happened and nothing will ever be the same because it has happened. And now we all have to make a decision of how to live with it. Paul says this news is going everywhere. Jump back just to verse 6 for a second. Chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says, The same good news that came to you is going out over all the world. It is bearing fruit and multiplying everywhere by changing lives. Just as it changed your lives the day you first heard and understood the truth about God's wonderful grace. I just want to throw in there, do you see the heart and mind piece again? I just caught this. Truth about God's wonderful grace. So we love grace and love to think about it, love to feel it, but truth and grace brought together is what they have understood and, it, and their lives are changed. The Colossians' live, lives have been changed by the gospel of Jesus. They were transformed. And this transformation is happening all over the world, Paul says. For his world, that means places like Syria and Palestine. 
Greece and Turkey, Italy, Spain, parts of India. And Paul says this gospel is bearing fruit and multiplying. Bearing fruit and multiplying everywhere. Here Paul borrows from Genesis chapter 1. He takes the Greek translation of the Hebrew and borrows those verbs and says, you know, Adam and Eve were called to be fruitful and multiplied. Let me tell you who's being fruitful and multiplying is the gospel. And the gospel is creating the multi-ethnic family of Jesus in the midst of our time, one person and one community at a time. Paul takes these Colossian Christians, these people that have come from Judaism, people who have come from paganism, and they're now brought together into this multi-ethnic spiritual family. And Paul is mapping their little story on the story of what God is doing in the world. And let me tell you, that's so important. We become so myopic, so, so narrow-focused on our own lives and on our own church that we forget that God is in the midst of something big in our region, in our county, in our city, in our world. And Paul is mapping the story of the Colossians onto the story of, onto God's big story. That's what he's done all the way through chapter one. And then here at the end, what Paul does is says, let me tell you how my little story maps onto the story of what God is doing in the world. Let me tell you, Paul says, about my life and how this gospel has changed me. Look at the second half of verse 23 through verse 27 of chapter one. Paul says, this good news has been preached over all the world, and I, Paul, have been appointed as God's servant to proclaim it. He says, I am glad when I suffer for you in my body, for I am participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for his body, the church. Some of you are reading a different translation, and it says, I am filling up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. God has given me the responsibility of serving his church by proclaiming his entire message to you. This message was kept secret for centuries and generations past, but now it has been revealed. It has been unveiled to God's people. God has gone like, ta-da. Verse 27, it's not on the screen. For God wanted them, who? God's people, to know that the riches and glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too. And this is the secret Christ lives in y'all. This gives y'all assurance of sharing his glory. So we tell others about Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all the wisdom God has given us. We want to present them to God, perfect in their relationship to Christ. That's why I work and struggle so hard, depending on Christ's mighty power that works within me. We're going to unpack all of this as, as how it relates to us. But it's interesting to me that Paul turns autobiographical here. And what Paul says is, wow, this is really hard. Paul says this gospel work is rough. Paul says that it has been a difficult journey to be a part of God's kingdom work. It has been a difficult thing to be a part of God's big story. I mean, why does Paul go on and on about how hard it is? Couldn't find it. It's these things that keep me humble. You know what I'm saying? It's this stuff. Your pastor, like, like, why does Paul go on and on about how hard it is? Is he looking for pity? Is he trying to get the Colossians to say, hey, this is really hard. We should be paying him more. Is he just playing like a tiny little violin? Oh, Paul, your work life is so hard. Paul doesn't want pity. He doesn't want money. Paul wants this little church a church that he has never seen with his own eyes, 
a church in the neighboring city, Laodicea, a church he's never seen with his own eyes. He wants them to get a sense that while he's never seen them, while he doesn't know their names, he doesn't know much about them, he has an overwhelming affection for them. He has an overwhelming affection for them. He has an overwhelming concern for them. Elsewhere, Paul says, daily on me is the burden for all the churches. To the churches in Galatia, he said, oh, my friends, of whom I am in the pangs of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Paul is saying, I'm taking this seriously. I'm not in it for me. I'm not in it for the money. I'm not in it for the fame. I want you, what does he say in verse 28? I want you to be complete in Christ. I want you to be mature in Christ. I want you to be perfect. Paul speaks of suffering and struggle. He speaks of the hope of Jesus' indwelling presence. He lets the Colossians know that his ambition for them and every church that he's a part of is their maturity. And then he goes on in verses 1 through 5 of the next chapter, kind of having spoken generally Now it's kind of moving more specific, I guess you could say, but look at what he says in verses 1 through 5 of the next chapter. I want you to know how much I have agonized for you and for the church at Laodicea and for many other believers who I've never met personally. He says, I want them to be encouraged and knit together by strong ties of love. I want them to have complete confidence that they understand God's mysterious plan. How much confidence? Complete which is Christ in himself. I think verse 3 is like parenthetical. It's like a, hey, real quick, by the by. He says, in Jesus lie hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If you need some wisdom and knowledge today, let's get to Jesus. Verse 4, I am telling you this so that no one will deceive you with well-crafted arguments. For though I am away from you, my heart is with you. I love that line. And I rejoice that you are living as you should, and that your faith in Christ is strong. I uh, was thinking about this morning, last night, some kids from our youth group, they, they formed a band while we were there, and they would play at an Irish pub, the boys in our youth group, like these class of juniors and seniors. And, what's that? In Chicago, not here, in Chicago. Although if we have a youth group, they're welcome to play in an Irish pub, you know what I'm saying? Because um, I would love to go. And um, so... They would play at this, and so last night they all were in town for a wedding, and so they all played at McNally's last night. And I saw them, and I thought, oh, there's, there's a little piece of my heart. My heart is with them. I don't think this is a peculiarly pastoral thing. I mean, Joey and Julia have been uh, to Kurdistan. I mean, their hearts are there, right? Your heart is with the people that you have grown in the gospel with. Your heart is with the people that you have seen things happen. Zach went through the C.S. Lewis Institute. His heart is with those people, right? You, you are always, you people are always just going to have a piece of me. And Paul says, that's what it looks like. And, and, and it's interesting as he unpacks what his heart is for these people. As he unpacks what his heart is for these people, Paul is actually unveiling some of the themes that he's going to specifically address in this letter. Paul is specifically addressing uh, the four things that he's going to name. First of all, he says, I want you to be encouraged and knit together by strong ties of love. When we get to Colossians chapter 3, that's what it's all about. Colossians 3 is about strong ties of love. He says, I want you to have complete confidence in your understanding. That's what chapters 1 and 2 are about. He says, I don't want you to be deceived by well-crafted arguments. That's what chapter 2 is all about. He says, I want you to have a strong faith in Christ. That's what chapter 1 is all about. Strong faith in Christ. These four themes are going to play over and over throughout the letter. And before I kind of jump to, okay, what is this all about? How, how do I live into this? Here's, here's what I want you to unpack a little bit is, is these verses where Paul talks about the mystery hidden for ages. Like, look at, look at this left side. It says, 
This is from chapter 2. He says, I want them to have complete confidence that they understand God's mysterious plan, which is Christ himself. In him lie hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And chapter 1 there at the end, he said, this message was kept for secret for centuries and generations past. Now it's been revealed to God's people. For I wanted them to know that the riches of the glory and the glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too. And this is the secret a little book by a guy named Deepak Chopra. No, sorry, Oprah. This is the secret. Christ lives in you. And this gives you assurance of sharing his glory. A lot of things to say here. A few of them are important. Do you notice these words, hidden, mystery, secret? That God has now unveiled something. God has now revealed something. And what he has revealed is a plan to include the Gentiles, non-Jews, in his spiritual family. As American Christians in the 21st century, nothing is so far out of touch from us that for the whole history of God's people, we were apart from God. Paul says elsewhere, we are without hope in this world. But in the long history of God's people and in the long history of the 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and the New, God was building a plan to fulfill what he says in Isaiah 49, that my salvation shall stretch to the ends of the earth. He is building a plan that you and I, not born Jewish, not born under the covenant, not born under the law, might be included in his story. Do you know what the secret plan wasn't? A really healthy American church in the 21st century. It wasn't. His plan was that you and I, Gentiles, would be included in the story that he is telling. I'm trying to get us that 20,000-foot view. I'm trying to help us see that if the mystery, and words like mystery and hidden and secret are used to describe our faith, boy, are we going to bump into time and time and time again mysteries and secrets and things we do not fully understand. And Paul says, my prayer is that you would have complete wisdom and understanding about something you cannot fully comprehend. Do you notice that? He prays something like that in uh, Ephesians 3, that they would come to know the, the love of God, how high, how deep, how wide, how long, to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. He prays that we would know something we can't fully know. This is our faith. This is our faith, walking a journey that we cannot fully see, walking a journey that puts us part of something bigger than our hearts can hold and our eyes can imagine. And the mystery is that we are united to Christ. The mystery is that we are united to Christ corporately, that Jesus is in our midst, and individually, I am forever one with Jesus. I am forever one with Jesus. It's funny, if, if let's, let's pretend that I'm on a plane, and I'm a young professional who doesn't know Jesus, and Heather sits down next to me on this plane, and I say to her, um, oh, that's a Bible that you're reading. Tell me about this Jesus. Tell me about your faith. Heather is probably going to say what most of us would say, something like, oh, crap. No. Then she would say, then she would say, well, listen, um, sin had separated us from God. We were under punishment, and so God sent Jesus, and uh, Jesus lived a perfect life, and he died a sinless death, and so he paid the penalty that we owe God. He canceled the debt of our sin, and rising again, he makes a way for us to be able to be with him in heaven forever. I mean, that's Billy Graham 101, right? Now imagine I'm in the middle seat and Heather's here and she's telling me this gospel and imagine all of a sudden it's the Apostle Paul sitting to my left. This is a very interesting plane ride. And Paul, Paul would lean over and say, excuse, excuse me, miss, that is not the gospel. Paul would say the gospel is 
Christ in you, the hope of glory. And that the death and resurrection of Jesus, the penalty of sin, our separation, the way that he, he, he has dealt with all of that, that that is just the means to the end of Christ in you, the hope of glory. See, the end of our faith is not, I get to be in heaven forever. The end, the end of our faith is, I can be united with heaven now and forever. The goal of the gospel isn't to get into heaven after you die. The goal of the gospel is to get into heaven before you die. The goal of the gospel is that our circles are tastes of a loving community that we will never be apart from. The goal is that in our worship, we are getting tastes and glimpses of what our forever will be like. The end of the gospel is Christ in you, the hope of glory, that I am united with Christ. And this is so important. It is so important that the journey of my faith is such that there's me and there's Jesus, and that over the 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years of my life that I'm following Jesus, that over time we become indistinguishable. That's, that's Christ in you, the hope of glory. And it's union with Christ that it gives us, Paul says, assurance. Well, why does it give it assurance? Why does it give us assurance? Because if salvation is a thing I grab and hold onto and drop, there is no assurance. If salvation is a thing that, it's a gift that I'm given and I take it and I drop it, but if I am unified with Jesus, if I am one with him in a way that is mysterious, but a way that is understandable, in a way that is forever, he cannot deny himself. That's what Timothy says. He cannot deny himself. Hi, Zoe. When I do weddings, I've done some of your weddings, I've done your children's weddings, I will be doing some of your weddings. One of the things I say is, we are gathered here today in the sight of God, in the presence of one another, to witness and bless the joining together of so-and-so and so-and-so. And then I say, the covenant of marriage was established by God and signifies to us the mystical union between Christ and his church. Right? Marriage is given to us to remind us of the union that exists between us and Jesus. Sexual intimacy within the bonds of marriage is given to us to have a glimpse of what that union is like, which is what caused one of my theology professors in undergraduate to say something that I probably shouldn't say out loud, but you can ask me later. Don't say it. My wife is saying, don't say it. <laughs> union with Jesus. Basically, what he said is heaven is like sex. It is that kind of knowing, that kind of mutualness, that kind of joining. That kind of joining that a mother only knows, that Caitlin knows now, with Cutie Collins number two in there, right? Where she begins and where Cutie Collins ends is hard to discern, right? Union with Christ. The aim of the gospel, and actually the Bible Project just posted this, uh, the Bible Project would say that the whole story of God is about heaven and earth reuniting, through the person of Jesus. And our union with Christ now in this moment is a foretaste of that, is a down payment on that. That is the gospel. That is the gospel. It is why I live my life in obedient discipleship. It is how I experience the transformation that Paul's talking about in verse six and is what Paul and I and all of us who have called on the name of Jesus labor so hard to bring about. And that's where I kind of want to end our time is just looking at how Paul talks about his work. I, I've called this sermon, The Struggle is Real. And it's because I keep 
getting my attention, what keeps getting my attention is words like agony and suffering and work throughout the text that describe ministry. And so actually my second point, which was like our ministry is aimed at maturity, is, is, was originally going to be my first because I was going to just jump right in and be like, hey, when we're doing ministry together, we want to aim for maturity. And then uh, the Holy Spirit was like, hey, you might want to remind everybody that they have a ministry. Okay, so at the risk of repeating some of my stuff uh, from a couple weeks ago in 1 Corinthians 12, you have a ministry. You have a ministry. Paul opens the letter saying, this letter's from Paul chosen by the will of God and to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. To be an apostle means to be sent. You have been chosen and sent by God into the ministry you have. You've been chosen and sent. It's not a special thing for Paul. He has some special duties. He holds a special office, but you are no less chosen. You are no less sent than Paul. Jesus said, I, I, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. He did not say, so I will send a specially trained group of people to do it all for them. He said, no, I am sending all of you, the beloved community, into the world to point to me. You have a ministry. And what I want to remind you of is that you have a ministry because you have been given spiritual gifts. You have something to do that shows us who God is. We talked about this last time, right? Hide it under a bushel. No. There is something that you can do and only you can do that uniquely reveals to me who God is. And you stop hiding it under a bushel in the name of I need to get here on time and I need to get out and do my other stuff. Hide it under a bushel. No. Listen, I am a pastor. That is part of my ministry. But do you know where the most significant part of my ministry is? Is as a husband and as a father. My most significant ministry is as a friend, as a son. That's, that's where my ministry is. And, and that means, listen, when I come home for dinner, Steph and Jack don't sit there quietly while I preach for 30 minutes and we pass an offering basket around and then we send them to bed. My ministry to my son in this season is a ministry of presence. I already just so bemoan the number of times that I'm tippy-tapping away on my computer or looking at my phone, and I look past it to see Jack looking up to make eye contact with me. It's a ministry of presence. My ministry right now is a ministry of encouragement to my wife in a season that is just a season, but as every new mom in this church can tell you, this is rough, and we love it, and we want it, and we've sought after it, but it's intense. It's a ministry of encouragement. I'm, I'm a student right now, taking classes that, I'll be honest, I feel like I have some academic game, but I'm reading this article about the Trinity. I have no idea what it's saying. No idea. My ministry there is a ministry of excellence and not just phoning it in so I can get the degree on the other side. My ministry as a friend is to freaking remember to check in on people by text message instead of just moving through my to-do list and then watching Netflix. And here, it's a ministry of teaching here it's a ministry of keeping reality defined. Here it's a ministry of pointing the way. Here it's a ministry of raising up other people's gifts. But whether you're a parent or a friend or a fiance or a spouse or a grandparent or a mentor or an employee, I mean, whatever roles you play, that is the arena of your ministry. And the best thing that could ever happen in a minute, we're going to have a response time. And maybe the question Randy can lead you in is, Father, what is my ministry? What is my ministry? And by the way, to those of you that have duties on Sunday mornings to get stuff done, your ministry includes that but extends beyond it. Your ministry is not making the coffee. It is also 
Our ministry has one goal. It is not about surviving. It's not about getting it done. It is not about taking care of this task so I can take care of that one. It is about maturity. Look at what Paul says. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone complete in Christ. Another translation of that is mature. Another translation of that is perfect. How are you doing on Christian perfection today? Hey, John Wesley, who started our movement, said Christian perfection is possible in this life. He was also a little crazy, but he said it's possible. (laughs) We have one aim. It's maturity. If you're on the hospitality team, the goal is not give people a bulletin, make sure the coffee is hot, and make sure we're torn down and out of here by a 145. If you're a circle leader, it's not make sure that we got the food ready and that we've asked the questions right. If you're on worship team, it's not let me make sure I got all the notes right. If you're announcing, if you're on response time, it's not making sure I nail every little detail. See, if the sum total of our church does not create people in it more mature, then there is something foundationally wrong with our church. And if you, in your ministry, aren't creating people who are more mature, with the, more mature because of your presence in their life, you're not doing your ministry the biblical way. You're not doing the ministry the way that God designed you to do it. So how do we do this? Paul says, well, first of all, we need to have the name of Jesus on our lips. He says, him we proclaim. Don't tell your friends about how great your church is. Nobody cares. I, I, right now, I would crash and burn Regen if we got obsessed about the brand. Do not say, you've got to come try Regen. My pastor is amazing. You need to talk about how Jesus is doing things in our church. You talk about Jesus. The words in your circles, Jesus is on our lips. And as we do that, we warn and we teach. Listen, sometimes instruction is needed. I'll get texts from you guys. Hey, help me think through this part. I need to give you some instruction, right? Sometimes warning is needed. Like, listen, Jack just discovered outlets, okay? No, no, warning. And the way that we know the difference between the two is wisdom. The way that we know the difference between the two is wisdom. We have to have wisdom. How do I get more wisdom? Again, all treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Jesus. You want to get wisdom? Memorize the book of Proverbs and you'll be about 9% there. This is why what we're trying to craft is a multi-generational community, right? Because when we get the energy and passion and recklessness of younger people and the experience and wisdom and seasoned stuff of older, of more seasoned people, when we come together, we are really an unstoppable force of the kingdom. But what churches typically do is slam one way or the other. And we're trying to do both. We're trying to embrace the genius of the end instead of the tyranny of the or. We need those things together. We need wisdom. Does your presence in someone's life make them more mature, or does, their, does your presence drag them down to a lower common denominator? And I'm not saying the high common denominator of, well, I don't cuss because I'm a Christian. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, are people stirred to something more because you're in their life? And again, let me say, If Sunday morning gatherings plus prayer nights plus circles plus huddles plus kids ministry plus worship team plus hospitality team, if all these things do not on the other end equal maturity, then we need to throw it all in the fire and start over again. 
And that's scary work. See, our systems are perfectly designed to give us the results that we're getting. So if we don't like the results, that's not hand ring figured out. So we've got to go back to the system and figure out what's not working. We proclaim Christ, warning and teaching everyone with all the wisdom of God has given us. As a parent, my job, my job is to produce spiritual maturity in Jack. He could get all A's, be super well-rounded athletically, and if he doesn't love Jesus at the end of my time with him, I have failed. Hear me, I have failed. I have failed in the one God-given duty I've been given toward him. If Steph does not feel like she is married to Jesus... I'm not performing the ministry of my marriage well. Please don't ask her if she feels like she's married to Jesus. <laughs> especially, especially given the marriage moment we had about a week and a half ago. If you're not more mature and closer to Jesus because we spend time together, I have failed. I have failed. Here's the hard part. Paul seems pretty clear that this is going to suck. He uses words like agony and struggle and suffering and affliction and work, which means as a parent, as a son, as a friend, as a pastor, as a spouse, as a student, suffering is a necessary part. In your ministry, suffering is a necessary part. And listen, there will be seasons of favor where it's kind of like some slow pitches that you can just hit out of the park. But it often feels, ministry doesn't often feel like breakthrough, does it? It more often feels like battle and frustration, right? Like going downhill and trying to stop or fighting for every step uphill. It's not often very breakthrough-y. And I have been shocked over and over again at how difficult ministry is. I've been shocked over and over again at how hard my job is. I have been shocked over and over again at how hard it is to be a spiritual parent. And so have you. Looking around at some of you, you guys have been spiritually parenting people and grandparents. I mean, it's hard. It is hard. And what we do is, oh, it must be hard, so it must not be Jesus. And I'm not saying that all the time Jesus says, here's all the options. Let's pick the hardest one. That's the one that's my will for your life. I'm just saying that a lot of the time it feels like we are, we are battling. We are going uphill. We are trying to overcome frustration. And it seems to me, now we can, let's have a conversation about boundaries and self-care and the value of saying no at another time, but it seems to me that the place that I'm avoiding to go is the, because it sounds like it's going to be painful is probably the next area of ministry that God is calling me into. Oh, it feels really uncomfortable to go to a circle because of time and I can say all of these things. Is that the place? I, I'm avoiding this conversation with this person because I just don't want to deal with it. I just don't have time. I don't have the energy. They're not going to get it, whatever. I'm starting, to, I'm starting to kind of hide from this person's text. I'm starting to ignore this person's calls. I mean, one of my kids right now really needs a lot of my attention. And I don't know if I want to give it. I'm not saying go find the hard thing and that's it. I'm just saying that it feels like very often the place of pain is probably where the ministry is happening. My prayer for so many of us in the midst of the difficulty of ministry is that our Sunday morning gathering time 
our community time in circles, would be that place that we plug in and have the tank filled back up, have the battery recharged, so that we can do the next six days, six and a half days, not on our own strength, because doing it on our own strength does not lead to fruit that lasts, but doing it on his strength, because it gives him the glory. And when it is hard, Paul says, it is Christ in us who is our assurance. And it's Christ in us who is our assurance that there is more to it than this, that this is meaningful, that this has weight, that this will bear fruit, that the endless times that I go to Jack and say, no, 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 don't touch that, are bearing fruit. They're bearing fruit. Let me pray. Randy will lead us in some response time, and then we'll receive communion. <clears throat> Jesus, thank you that you are in us and with us, that your voice speaks good news to us. Thank you that when the struggle is real, you are realer still. Thank you that your name, which is without contention, whose power cannot be questioned, who, who can't be contained, that you are in us, that this is a taste of what heaven is like, that we get to be with you forever. Lord Jesus, would you stir in us today a fresh commitment. Amen. Um, so, if Jesus is in you, um, think of one way that you saw him in yourself this past week. Um, maybe you responded to something in a way that was like, ooh, that, that was more like Jesus than like I used to be. Um, you know, look for Jesus somewhere in your week. Um, and then ask him, you know, okay, so what needs to be refined? What in me could be more like you, Jesus? You know, if it's your anger or your pride or, you know, your level of distraction. <laughs> and um, then I guess the third question that I'm asking is, who is my ministry? Because it's not just about things that you're doing, but it's about who you're focusing on. Um, so, you know, whoever it is in your life. So just take a minute and you can think about those three things and... Uh, really listen to what he has to say. <laughs>